This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Foyt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants of Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an editor for one of the leading peer-reviewed cost-effectiveness journals in the United States. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. If you're interested in joining in the conversation today, please call us at one 844 wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Today we'll be discussing geriatric home care. There's been a recent focus in the market, and uh, and in the news, and in the medical literature on this particular topic. Medicare is looking to expand payment for remote monitoring for the home health care market. JAMA Internal Medicine recently published a study on bundling payment for hospital and home transitional care which demonstrated improved patient outcomes and ratings of the care experience. A paper recently published in the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine demonstrated economies in caring for geriatric patients in the home. On Sunday, July 8, 2018, a a front-page article in the New York Times detailed low staffing levels in nursing homes. The essence of this article is that nursing homes are not doing as good a job as they could in caring for the elderly. So in summary... Care for geriatric patients in the home demonstrates improvements in care and in patient well-being. The care team models that are incorporating, they're incorporating social workers, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, nutritionists, family members, transportation, and housing into the equation. And payers are actually beginning to pay for non-direct medical care. This home movement is gaining steam and as well is really where patients want to be, in their community and in their homes, even with increased frailty. I am intimately involved in this process with my parents, who are 93 and 87 years old, respectively. They have expressed a desire to spend their remaining time with each other as independently as possible. My dad is gradually becoming less and less mobile and exceedingly frail, and it frustrates and depresses him. He knows he doesn't have much time left, but in the remaining time he has left, he wants to be in his home around people he loves, especially my mother. So we have a perfect storm here. There is a changing demographic with elders living longer. By the year 2030, 77-plus million will be alive in the U.S. or 65 and older. By 2050, that number will rise to 88 million, with 50 million of those being 75 and older. More than 70% of Medicare beneficiaries have multiple comorbidities, such as diabetes, heart failure, hypertension, chronic uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, ischemic heart disease, and hyperlipidemia. These, in turn, are expensive to treat. Medicare and Medicaid, as well, are seeking significant cuts in expenditures while attempting to maintain quality care. There's recently been legislation that's passed allowing Medicare to pay for non-medically related items such as transportation and nutrition under the Chronic Care Act of 2018 as part of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. There's also proposed legislation, which we'll get into with our guests. So today we're talking with several experts who are on the forefront of this movement and caring for the elderly in their home. My guest today, Dr. Bruce Kenoshin, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a staff physician at the Corporal Michael Crescents. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Okay. VA Medical Center in Philadelphia, and an associate director with the Geriatrics and Extended Care Data Analysis Center. Throughout his career, he's worked in integrated single-payer systems, the VA, PACE, which I'll ask him to explain in a second, and a novel arrangement in Philadelphia between the Philadelphia Corporation on Aging and the home-based primary care program in Penn's Geriatric Division. This arrangement creates an interdisciplinary team integrating community supports with home-centered medical care. Through the Mid-Atlantic Consortium, Penn has participated in the Independence at Home demonstration during its six years of operation. Dr. Kenoshin has been a faculty member with the Independence at Home Learning Collaborative, which has operated through a Medicare demonstration program to improve practices 
through sharing of processes linked with data analysis and feedback. Bruce, welcome. Thank you. My next guest, Dr. Evelyn Guarneri, is a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Aging in the Department of Medicine at the Columbia University Vagilis, Vagilis College of Physicians and Surgeons and New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Guarneri has served on the board of National Geriatrics and Academic Societies and has been on numerous national councils and committees. Dr. Guarneri also holds leadership positions with the Association of American Medical Colleges and spearheads much of their geriatric initiative. Evelyn serves as a resource in geriatric medicine for a number of national lay and professional publications. Evelyn, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. And my last guest is Jean Uden, who is the director of the Truman G. Schnabel, is that correct? Schnabel. Schnabel, okay. In-home primary care program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She's a longstanding board member of the inclusion of nurse practitioners in home-centered medicine. She directs the university's participation in the Mid-Atlantic, Mid-Atlantic Consortium, one of the practices in the Independence at Home demonstration. Jean developed and studied the novel collaboration between the Truman G. Schnabel in-home primary care program and the Philadelphia Corporation on Aging, or called ElderPAC, which has demonstrated the effectiveness of integrated medical and supportive services to maintain frail elders efficiently in the community. Jean participates in the geriatric division's economic, uh, I'm sorry, educational efforts for medical students, residents, and fellows in home and community-based care, and participated in training in interprofessional teams involving learners from social work, nursing, medicine, and dentistry. Jean is also a member of the, of the core leadership team for Penn's geriatric workforce education program, and she also serves as a member of the ABIM Geriatric Specialty Board. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. So let's get into the meat of the discussion today. Um, I'm hoping I can ask both of you, or all three of you, just give me kind of a one-minute snapshot of what you guys are doing as it relates to geriatric home care. And Evelyn, I'm going to ask you first, so please go ahead. Sure. And and I I have to say that uh, I've been doing home care since 1977, hard as it is to believe, and started actually doing it as a as when I was a dietitian with a hospice. So I've had a, a lot of um, wonderful experiences doing this. But at Columbia right now, we have a, a, a division of geriatric medicine that focuses on very frail older adults, and our um, goal is to continue to care for these uh, older adults until they die. That is, they come to us when they're relatively healthy, and then we can continue for, to care for them at home once they can no longer come to us. A significant part of our efforts are directed at teaching the residents, all of whom rotate in, in medicine, who rotate through geriatric medicine, take them on house calls, take them into the community settings, and have them understand the resources that may be available for care for older adults in our, our specific community. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. Bruce, mm-hmm. can I ask you what you're doing here with uh, geriatric home care at Penn? Um, similar to <coughs> what Evelyn's doing at Columbia, uh, we've had a house call program at the Penn Division of Geriatrics since the early 90s uh, that's been heavily involved in educating medical students, residents, fellows in delivering care to the home, in integrating community supports uh, with the care of frail elders. Um, mm-hmm. We've spent a fair effort in developing models of care, uh, first within organizations that can cover all the different types of care that need to be delivered into the home, and more recently uh, with uh, coordinating care that come from multiple different sources and making that kind of care more effective and developing models to help reinforce that kind of care. Got it. Okay, thank you. And Jean, tell me a little bit about what you're doing at the... uh Schnabel Center. Sure. Schnabel, sorry. <laughs> um, as a nurse practitioner, I'm the director of our program, and actually the Schnabel in-home program is going to be celebrating its 25th anniversary of delivering person-centered, complex, interprofessional care, mm-hmm. again, as everyone else has mentioned, to those frail, frail homebound elders who live in Philadelphia. Yeah. And again, for 20 of those years, we've been working very closely with the Philadelphia Corporation for Aging. Um, to deliver the community services and supports that these individuals need in order to remain in their home. And at least um, in the past, what's been distinctive about our program is that we're an interagency, interdisciplinary team. And and what does that mean, interagency, interdisciplinary? 
So um, we may get into a little bit uh, later, but you mentioned Elder Pack, and that is our local area agency on aging. And we have case managers from that agency that are a part of our core team and really deliver all of the non-medical services that people need Mm -hmm. in order to remain in their home. Okay. Um, So I got to tell you, um, you know, when I was putting this show together, um, and, and, and interacting with all three of you, I, I found you to be the most accommodating people I've ever met in my life. And I, I'm just, I'm just curious as to is that um, is our geri- is geriatric medicine is that different than the other types of medicine? And um, generally, when I talk to doctors, they don't get back to me for a week. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> And you guys, you guys got back to me in like I don't know thirty seconds. It, it was it was extremely refreshing. So, I, Evelyn, is yeah. there something about your your DNA that makes you makes you that way? Or well, I haven't had my DNA tested, but I'll okay. tell you that <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a kinship among us. Um, but it, it really is a mission. I mean, we we really are. You don't. No one goes into geriatrics by default. Mm-hmm. This is a, a well-informed sort of decision. And and I, I, my my colleagues on the phone um, will will um, uh, Gene and Bruce will will I'm I'm sure say the same thing. But you know what we do is we care for people. We're not in the business of curing because there it's not a cure sort of focus. It really is caring for people and improving the quality of their life and actually recognizing what is it about these individuals that they want. What is the quality that they demand or they would like for their lives? And this is what we we do focus on. And I I will say one other thing because I want them to speak, but I think that one of the uh, one of the uh, the hallmarks of, of of geriatrics, in addition to the quality of life, is that we do recognize that at a certain point in life, people um, it's not disease specific, it's not organ specific, and other physicians may not want to care for people who are so frail and have many many needs that are psychosocial. Um, in addition to all the other components of aging, mm-hmm. and so we're there to do that. And I, the last thing I'm going to say is that I liken it to baseball. We are a team sport. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, and, 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 and that's that's a bit different than uh, medicine's trying to be that way. At least the other disciplines are in specialties, but you, you guys have become much more of a team sport than than the yeah, other. They're speci- little Johnny Come Latelys. We, okay, for, got it. For a long got time, it. So, all right, Bruce. I mean, do you have anything to add to that? I think Evelyn said it really well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, the focus in geriatrics has been, and it's actually a privilege with our patients, has been able to uh, share people's lives and make their lives better. The focus is on the living, the Got life, it. not so much on the actual disease. Yeah, so so, so you, you've incorporated not just their medical condition, but you're understanding the whole portion of what their life's about. Is that, is that right? Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Well, which, which is more than other doctors would typically do. Yes, mm, yeah. but but a little deal. bit more than that. Okay. Uh, the toolkit that we think that we that we try to deploy is much broader to cover that broad facet of factors that influence people. Yeah, and and, so, that, and, that and that, that's what, different than the other is, parts of medicine. Yeah, the toolkit is just give me a couple of things there in that toolkit that you don't think other people don't have. Other doctors have home repair. Home repair, really? <laughs> Modifying the environment. Okay, very good. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. got that. Um, so, so Jean, uh, you have anything to add to this as far as? No, I think they've summed it up very okay. well. But I do <laughs> think that oftentimes the most important interventions that we have for our patients are social and not medical. Yeah. And that's really less about how well the disease is being managed and more about how the patient's able to live a life yeah. and have goals that we can help them with that work around the diseases they have. Okay. So this kind of, my next question kind of plays into that uh, kind of that concept, but it, uh, how do you make elderly people's lives uh, vibrant? I mean, they they should have, I mean, you know, they want to have meaning to their life, I guess, at the end. How do, how do you as clinicians make their lives vibrant so that they want to continue? Uh, Evelyn? Um, I, I might I might change the word vibrant or vibrancy to 
you know, optimizing how do we how do we optimize the quality of their life? And they can take any form. I mean, they're the the, the, re, the recognition that at some point their lives may not be as one might describe vibrant, but they will have a quality to their lives that they appreciate or their families appreciate. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what we need to take into consideration. I mean, it's not all the happy, healthy, bopping around sort of people that you might see on commercials. I mean, the the people we take care of actually have a lot of challenges in dealing with, and their family members and caregivers too, in dealing with it. So I think a, a, a lot of factors going to one is rec- recognizing what the issues are, recognizing what they want, um, and, and what their family might want, recognizing what cultural sorts of issues play a role in determining how to optimize the quality of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, I'll, I'll let somebody else go yeah, on. Okay, but Bruce. Those, those are some of the things. Um, well, like Evelyn said, I mean, there's people's have different goals in their lives, and yes. vibrancy isn't always part of it. I but understand. For right. a lot of people, it actually is. Yep. Um, and a lot of our goal, our role is to both clarify goals mm-hmm. that individuals have, and to the extent that we can remove their physiologic, that's the medical, and the social barriers to their actually achieving those goals. Got it. And that's, yeah. Gene, anything to add to that or no? Okay. All right, so let's go on to the next question. So um, a lot of the stuff that's going on now, let's say in Medicare, uh, with these uh, primary care, the home primary care model, is really taking concepts that have been going on for years at the VA um, and I know Evelyn and Bruce and Jean, I think you I'm haven't been, been in, okay. Um, you guys have been involved with that for years. And what have you learned from that experience that you can take to other parts of uh, insurers, patients, care that, um, th- that, is, uh, that is helping you along the way? Um, I'm going to ask you first, Bruce. What, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so the VA's had a home-based primary care program since the early 1970s, mm-hmm. and it's been fairly intensively studied for the last 15 years. And in a series of multiple studies, it's pretty clear that it saves the VA money, mm-hmm. that for similarly complex veterans, it's less expensive to care for them and manage their illnesses with a team of individuals that care for them in their home setting mm-hmm. and that the care is better and the patients like it more. Yeah. So it's, you know, smarter spending, better care. Better care. Got it. That's higher quality. Yeah. The triple, which is, the triple aim of medicine and, right. and access too, right? Yeah. And yeah. you get, and you have access. Yeah. Um, and can I, can, oh, yeah, sorry. go ahead. Evan. Yeah. No, one of the, and, and Bruce is, is such an expert in this really. I mean, he's, uh, been so so well regarded and thought of uh, with regard to his work in HBP home-based primary care. But um, you know, as someone who transitioned from the VA when I came to Columbia, I, I certainly recognize the absolute joy and benefit of taking care of patients in that model. But one of the things that really stands out is the fact that the VA has a wonderful uh, um, electronic medical record that's that's national. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's uniform. Uh, and the second is there. In addition to the geriatrics mission, there is a VA mission where putting veterans, you know, ca- caring for them, which is um, which doesn't exist in every for, caring for them into old age, which doesn't exist in every institution. Hmm. Um, so th- these are things that I think are challenges outside of the VA. And Bruce. Um, Bruce and Jean can speak to that too, but you have so there's more. There's, there's more of a continuity of care in the VA. You're saying than you would normally see in other 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 models. Care right. models. Is that, well, is that correct? In some ways, the VA is a single payer system that yeah. that combines what for the rest of the country, Medicare and Medicaid provide separately. Mm-hmm. So the other big advance in the VA has been for the last probably 15 years, the VA has invested substantially in expanding home and community services. Mm-hmm. So these, these are, this is non-medical care that's directed to support veterans in the home, and it's done this through either just paying for aids in the home or making daycare available for doing home improvements, uh, for establishing a system of medical foster homes that let veterans who otherwise would have to be in a nursing home reside in community 
settings with caregivers. So in what's nice about the VA in is more challenging on the Medicare Medicaid side and I, uh, is that everything is under one roof. Yeah, and I, I'm going to kind of segue into the Medicare and what's going on with that in a couple of minutes, but um, just wanted to do a quick reset. Is I'm Jeff Voigt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Today we're talking about geriatric home care. My guest, Dr. Evelyn Guarneri, who is Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Geriatric Medicine at Columbia, Dr. Bruce Kenoshin, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Geriatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and Jean Uden, uh, Director of the Truman G. Schnabel In-Home Primary Care Program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. So um, uh, tell me about, uh, Bruce, uh, the um, demonstration projects you've been working on with Medicare uh, and Jean, you, you probably have some involvement in that too, I would guess. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to segue off what Bruce and Evelyn were saying about the VA yeah. and how, in many ways, because it's like one payer and you have all the players around the table, it does make it easier. But what we were able to do, um, and it sounds relatively simple now, given 15 years later, but we took that same concept and looked at our house call program and looked at our AAA. Yeah. And that's where we kind of coordinated services and developed a team from community-based organizations, and we're able to show very, very similar results. We saved Medicare money, Medicaid money. We kept people living in the community longer, out of nursing homes, mm-hmm. with increased patient satisfaction. So while it is a challenge, um, it can be done. Okay, so I want to get kind of in, I'm going to get into the weeds here just a little bit, is um, Tell me about that team. What, who's on that team, and what are they doing, and how, how are they coordinating all of the care that happens? I mean, is it is it continuous? Is it fragmented? I mean, how, how have you solved those issues of making sure people have what they need? Well, I can speak to our um, team, and sure. the members of our team include uh, two case managers from our AAA, her Area Agency on Aging, mm-hmm. and then we have a relationship with a local home health agency, Pencare at Home, and they we have a nurse from that agency who's part of our team. And then, if you will, the core medical team are nurse practitioners, physicians, and a social worker. Got it. So we are a recognized team, and I think what's so interesting about it is that we all come out of different organizations, so it could be very siloed, but because of communication and uh, frequent meetings, we're able to, to work together as a team. Yeah, so my, my question again is how do you guys coordinate all that to the point of where you're doing the right thing for the patient? Sure. What, what What's the secret sauce in this? <laughs> do you guys have a secret sauce that you can tell people about? Well, Bruce? Gene, oh. Bruce? Any? I'll just start by saying, um, and it'll be interesting as we get into technology and looking yeah. at different ways we can do that, but uh, we have team meetings, weekly team meetings. That's a, no- that's a novel concept. <laughs> <laughs> and people could say, boy, that's an hour and a half away from patient care, but it's a very valuable hour and a half because we have everyone around the table and we talk about specific patients and it's face-to-face time where we can develop a plan of care. Uh-huh. Um, we use HIPAA uh, and encrypted phones so that we can text with each other. Got it. Um, again, um, at least Pencare at Home and our house call program, the physicians and nurse practitioners have access to the same medical record mm-hmm. so we can share electronically. Okay. Uh, Evelyn, do you have any secret sauce in, in, in your organization <laughs> that you're thinking makes um, it work well? I, I wish I did. Our, 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 <laughs> the size of our program it does, does not compare with Bruce and Jean's. But I do want to say that kudos to them and for all of the people who've been on their teams and something that's very difficult to do um, without the buy-in from different institutions and different organizations. And that really is the key. They were able to uh, get not just the buy-in, but the recognition of the fact that this is an important way to take care of older adults, and as many businesses will look for it, it saves money. And so it, it, that's, the, that's the biggest challenge is getting the buy-in from all these disparate sort of siloed contingencies to say this is the, this is the goal, this is the mission that we want to accomplish, and the fact that both that Bruce and Jean were able to do that speaks volumes about um, the skills and the, the insight of the organizations with which they work. Is it easy to get buy-in from these different organizations, or no? I mean, no. Okay. No. <laughs> no. No. We've Bruce. we've been incredibly fortunate with the PCA in their P- early. P- PCA that's the Philadelphia Corporation for Aging. Got it. Uh-huh. 
um, in the leadership there recognizing early on uh, the importance of coordinating medical care with the services that they deliver and that there's a synergy in that yeah, and uh, their desire to foster that. And are you guys, are you quantifying this along the way to say, hey, um, we're actually saving money here? Um, well, we've done a couple of studies uh-huh. with PCA. Uh, the l- more recent one, I believe, showed about 25% reduction in Medicaid spending, uh, about a 20% longer survival in the community for people uh, in uh-huh. the program, and usually in geriatrics, longer survival isn't the real goal. It's what you do within that survival. But sure. people actually live longer, too. Um, huh. As well as a 15, 20% reduction in Medicare spending. Got it. And those have been sort of similar outcomes that we've seen in the uh, in the Medicare demo. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick on that particular comment for a, a minute or two, and then we'll, we'll get off it. But I'm having a tough time understanding. Medicare sees that this is, this is a good thing. It saves money. Okay? You've shown it saves money. And yet they can't get off the proverbial pot to go ahead and say, let's make this a full program. What's the deal? Why, why, why is this taking so long to do? Um, and, and, and I don't want, I don't want you to be picking on people, but I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me. This is something that should probably happen and, and, and happen in, in a way that, you know, that is ex- more expedient than it's, than it's been in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce, you have, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> and again, uh, I don't want you to blame people. I just I, I want no, to make no, sure I understand no. what, 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 what the deal is. Okay, so, so there's two parts to Medicare. <laughs> yeah. There's Medicare Advantage, which are insurance company run organizations mm-hmm. uh, that manage care. Uh, there's a very small subset of programs that are treated sort of like managed care organizations, but they're really provider managed care. They aren't insurer managed care. And PACE is an example of that, mm-hmm. um, where while PACE is the payer, the actual management is by the people who provide the care, not Got it. They're not insurance company. Yeah. Um, and then there's fee-for-service yeah. Medicare. And that is a payment system that's been since the existence of Medicare as fee-for-service. It pays for bricks. And most of what, you know, you need in geriatric care is cement that holds all that brick together. That's not really paid for in the fee-for-service side. In the Medicare Advantage side, there actually has been a pretty rapid growth in home-based primary care. There has. Um, Uh The current director of uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations, Adam Bowler, had set up a company, Landmark Health, just five, six years ago, uh-huh. has grown dramatically uh, around the country, uh, but operating primarily within Medicare Advantage companies, and that's because in Medicare Advantage, the insurer is its own single payer and can s- see the advantages of this kind of care. So so they're, they're fully at risk. They're the ones that have to, to uh, essentially pay for the care based on a pot of money they get, say, from Medicare. Right. Is that, is that right? Okay, right. got it. And yeah. so they have – and so it's very much their advantage to spread this model. And there's a number of got it. companies, United Healthcare, but mm-hmm. – anyway, so Optum has its home-based primary care program mm-hmm. um, is another example of an insurer. I think Cigna has their own home-based primary care Okay. operation too. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn, you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a finite amount of money in the pool, and I think there are a lot of different constituents who want their share of the pot. Um, and I, I'm sorry, it's going to sound slightly political, although I'm not going to affiliate it with any political party. But there are, there are uh, people who want to maintain their share of the Medicare pot. And so I think that what needs to happen is there to be a more overarching sort of uh, dissemination of information about to people, to real people, not just to the physicians and the other the other clinicians and the in- institutions. But look, this is really good. This is how we want our Medicare money spent. The CM, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Studies, should be you know they hold hearings. I think people need to have their voice raised that this is going to be what benefits older adults, not the sort of uh, uh, siloed care that that has been uh, usual in the past. And Bruce is right there. The Medicare the 
the programs are expanding, but probably not quickly enough, uh, and I think we need to push that further. Okay. So we need to take a short break, but please stay with us. When we get back, we'll continue our conversation on geriatric home care. We'll be back in a few. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Jeff Voigt. Welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeff Voigt. And today we're talking about geriatric home care. And my guests are Dr. Evelyn Granary, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Aging at uh, Columbia. Dr. Bruce Kenoshin, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Geriatrics at the Perman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and Gene Uden, who is the director of the Truman G. Schnabel In-Home Primary Care Program at UPenn. So at the, uh, during the break, we were talking about some of the technologies that you're actually taking from outpatient emergency, and you're bringing them into the home now, and, and care is being provided in the home. And I wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit as to what kind of things uh, that used to be outpatient now <laughs> becoming home-based. Uh, and, Jean, you were talking a little bit about those. I'm going to ask you just just kind of start this off, if that's okay. Please. Certainly. So services that we can uh, bring into the home can be divided into um, different areas. But if we have a patient who needs physical therapy or occupational therapy or education around diabetes, hypertension, wound care, we can work with home health agencies, and insurances will pay for that. But we can also get chest X-rays and EKGs and Dopplers, um, again, through diagnostic companies, and there's a very quick turnaround with that. We have lab services that come into the home. And then kind of getting back to keeping individuals functional, we have optometrists and podiatrists who come to the home. And again, here at Penn, and probably a bit of the luxury of being in an academic center, we've been, we have been able to get specialists to come out, pulmonologists, so really? for some of our patients who might have trachs. Yeah. But we also carry with us equipment now. There are um, a fair amount of apps, so you can do some basic studies in the home, but a pulse oximeter, you know, pretty basic technology, but that gives us information. Um, there's iStat, so you can draw blood in the home. Sure. There's a device that you can put on the back of your phone that will give you a rhythm strip. So that, um, hmm. ah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the fun things about house calls is it takes us back to seeing a patient and really needing to use observational skills as well as good physical assessment. And then now we have a little bit more to help us make a diagnosis in the home. Yeah. So, Evelyn, are you, what, are you doing similar things at Columbia from a technology standpoint, bringing more of that into the home? Evelyn, you there? One thing, though, that, oh. you know, apropos of the education that we all do, I think that all of us have seen that taking medical students and or residents out to the home is the most eye-opening experience <laughs> that they get. They really? are absolutely uh-huh. enthralled. They are sold um, as, to the, as to the benefit and the wonder of the things that we can do at home. They have never been, first of all, they never go into homes that are anything other, generally, anything other than their socioeconomic class, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we take them into homes of people for whom they wouldn't ordinarily go into a home, and they see how our patients actually live. Um, and they, they really are uh, taken uh, it, 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 no matter where I've been in, in this country doing house calls, and even when I would do them overseas, it is the most eye-opening experience I think that uh, a, a young trainee can have. Yeah. Bruce, do you have anything to add to that besides the rhythm strip thing you showed me? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I think Evelyn's right. It really is eye-opening because, uh, I mean, what students see is they see the real impact of disease on how people live their lives. Yeah. And it's sort and it's a different experience because uh, you're on the patient's turf, yeah, not your turf, yeah. And it changes the power dynamic in the relationship. It, you're a guest, yeah. and it, that's it, the students can, I think, appreciate. Does, does it give them? It sounds like it gives them a much broader perspective about uh, their life and how they deal with their life based on their condition. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and maybe even perspectives on how to treat these pe- treat the conditions so that it actually helps with the with the lifestyle. Is that right? Versus having not having that known, period. Is that is that right? Yes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. yes. Okay. So my next question is is gonna relate to um uh some of the more mobile technologies that are out there. And 
how receptive uh, the elderly are towards using those kind of things. Um, are, are you finding that they are? And are you finding that you, are you communicating with them uh, in, in, in such a manner? You know, whether it's uh, whether it's through a phone, mobile phone, whether it's through a, a Siri device, whether it's through their computer. Um, what, what what are you guys seeing as it relates so to that? Different kind of mobile technology, right? Uh-huh. So when we take technology into the home to do things that they would otherwise experience in a medical institution, people are very receptive to that. Uh-huh. Uh, we've been starting to use uh, pocket ultrasound in the home to do heart and lung exams and abdominal exams and all, and patients are fine with that. Um, on putting other kinds of monitoring technology in the home and then having patients have to interact with that, that's been variable. Variable. <laughs> um, some of it is difficult to necessarily sync up. Mm-hmm. And some patients aren't their own uh, tech support and have difficulty in getting some of it to actually sync. And I've been in patients' homes where I can't get the scale that's linked to the Internet mm-hmm. that's supposed to download the weights to actually transmit anything. Evelyn, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, I'm sorry. But uh. one of the biggest challenges is that we're dealing with an older, frailer population. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to 85 in this country, it's 50-50 chance that you're going to have dementia. And that brings with it an entirely different set of challenges. Um, mm-hmm. People with dementia cannot use the technology, so they need somebody else there. And that somebody may or may not be there, um, but I think that that is a technology or that that's a, that's a whole class of technology that's going to have to be developed, I think, further. How do we deal with someone who doesn't know what time it is, what day it is, and certainly doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to use technology by him or herself? Um, I, I was with you, Evelyn, last week, and you, you made a very alarming comment to me, and it scares a living daylights out of me. Sorry. No, well, no. <laughs> the, you, you said that Alzheimer's is going to um, uh, bankrupt Medicare. Yeah, dementia. Dementia. Will come, okay. May bankrupt dementia unless we think about doing it differently. Really? Um, and I, I'm going to talk about that for a couple. Well, actually, let's talk about it now. What? How can we think about it differently? Excellent question, John. <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to look for I'm gonna look for contributions from my colleagues here. I mean, are you guys are you handling these types of patients differently than you have in the past, uh, or or is is it is it a really difficult patient population to handle? Jean, I mean, um, it is difficult. Again, oftentimes by the time we're seeing patients, the dementia has advanced. Yeah. So um, not necessarily with technology, but when someone is cognitively impaired, that's the time that we want to start talking about advanced directives, goals of care, yeah. their personal desires and wishes. And so it becomes challenging with our particular patient population because oftentimes they're past that stage. They are. Okay. So you, you, if you caught them earlier in the, proce- in the dementia maybe. process, it might help a little bit. I mean, hopefully. Yeah, Bruce, you have have thoughts on that? So I guess the good news about Alzheimer's and dementia is its actual rate is declining. The total number of people who have dementia is increasing, but the Mm. two biggest risk factors for it, or the the most protective factor is education, and that's actually improved with successive cohorts. Yep. And vascular disease, which has declined. So the actual rates have declined. They have, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, total, so, total numbers because the popu- the aging population has increased. The total yeah. numbers a little higher, but um, but I think you know as Jean and Evelyn have said, a lot of it has to do with expectations and focus, and the focus on what you want to get out of the remaining part of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally leads people not to choose I want to spend the rest of my you know life when I get sick in an intensive care unit on a, on a ventilator sure. and uh, shifting that focus more toward putting things in the final chapters of your life that you want yep. okay. uh, I think is bending the cost curve a bit too. Yeah, okay. So I'm Jeff Foyt, and uh, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare. Today we're talking about geriatric home care, and my guests today are Dr. Bruce Kenoshin from Penn. 
Dr. Evelyn Granary from Columbia, and Jean Uden from also from Penn. Um, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here and, and um, talk a little bit about some of the um, challenges that you are having in caring for elders and allowing them to remain independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm just going to throw out a couple of concepts, and I'm going to ask you guys to respond to these. One of them is uh, addressing provider retention, making sure they have continuous care, obviously care coordination, keeping the family members involved, um, uh, unmet demands for services, uh, integration of electrical electronic medical information, and logistics for handling these people um, more so on a, even from a, a manual basis as opposed to an electronic basis. Um, can you help me a little bit with the, the main challenges you have with some of these patients that, um, and maybe some of the solutions you've come up with to kind of think about, okay, this is how we overcame that particular challenge. Uh, Jean, can give me some thoughts I think, on that? I um, think, you know, it's bringing actual supports in the home to help with many of these patients physically. Mm-hmm. You know, many of our patients are what we call ADL dependent. They need help with bathing and dressing and grooming. And if they're living with an equally frail spouse or, you know, many of our patients have elderly children who are caring for them. Yeah. And it's much more than a 24-hour-a-day job. So being able to um, get them assistance with that and then encouraging those family members to use that time for themselves, that's a bit of a challenge. But, again, in our program, we see families go to great lengths and to take care of their, their loved one, yeah. often to their own detriment. detriment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, yeah. bringing services into the home um, and getting some sort of relief. And, and, and that is helping them in some respect, the family, the f- family caregiver. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Evelyn? You know, one of the items you mentioned is unmet needs, and I there isn't a night that goes by that I'm not on the phone with a, a family member, a caregiver, who is just, just like Jean said, incredibly stressed, and just having uh, someone who will be able to talk with them about the challenges that the family members themselves face. Uh, that we found that to be uh, incredibly rewarding for the caregiver, him or herself, mostly herself, um, but... Mm. That's something we need because they, they they do get sick. The caregivers get sick more frequently. There's good studies on that. Uh, and so somehow setting up a system where they can call 24-7 and have someone who can just talk them through a particular issue has been life-saving, I think. Are you, it sounds like you guys are doing that. Yes? Yeah. 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 I, Evelyn, uh, Bruce, you're, yeah. you're, you're dealing mm-hmm. a lot with family members and helping them through this process and making sure they understand what yeah. needs to happen and how how they might be able to help is that yes yeah, yeah. I think and, actually and they're the lucky ones truthfully because they have family there's yeah. a significant number of people who don't have those kinds of involved family members either because they don't exist or because they just don't sorry to say care enough but um, so we have to work on that that part of the equation yeah. I think um, helping the family feel that they can be part of the decision making is is important too that again we've talked about the team but at the very center of that team is the the patient and then their caregivers and so when we're making visits we always try to make sure that the family knows you know whether they live locally or in far away what's going on with their loved one do they have any questions or concerns and how often do you communicate with the family caregivers a lot like <laughs> like on a daily basis or, or no um, it, it for really, some families it really depends really? yeah for some families you know if they're in crisis or if we're taking care of someone who's acutely ill at home and we've all made the decision that we're going to take care of that patient at home yeah then we're talking with them daily on the phone yeah. on the phone yeah. or yeah. in person or yeah. working with our other team members so that they know that we're all communicating yeah. with so you know I, we, we did a show i don't know about seven or eight months ago we, we actually looked at the issues of family caregivers and their health okay and and, mm-hmm. and some of the studies out there actually show that these people are tremendously mm-hmm. stressed mm-hmm. um they are giving up you know their lives and and some of their livelihood from a you know from an employer employee standpoint mm-hmm. and um and they really don't have a lot of resources out there it sounds like you guys are, i mean you're, you're at the front lines and and you are a resource but they need more. Yes. Uh, it, yes. it, is, is that right? Yeah. Yes. They do. One of the, I think Evelyn was part of a study, in, we were in Philadelphia too, of uh, home, VA home-based primary care back in the 90s. And one of the somewhat surprising at the time outcomes of it was that the health of the caregivers improved. Really? In the group that was getting home-based primary care. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 are you incorporating that into your uh, into your comprehensive ca- home home care, or, or is this kind of like a byproduct? Well, I, well, on the VA side, act, the you had mentioned teams, and teams yeah. have different people that are on them. But all the VA home based primary care teams have a psychologist. They do on the team to, whose to care job for, is really yeah. for caregiver support. Really? Yeah. Okay. Evelyn, anything to add to that, or? No, no? I, just once again, it, it, this, using the VA is a great model from which all you know everybody else can learn because they've been doing it so well and for so long. Um, but yeah. Okay, I, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, lobbying uh, Congress for some of the things you guys are looking for. <laughs> I, Bruce, I understand that you do a <laughs> you do a fair amount of that. Is that correct? I mean, you're down at Washington, and I don't lobby. We try to educate. You educate. <laughs> oh, well, that's yeah, and hopefully that education results in uh, people the light bulb going off. Um, can you tell me some of the things that I mean, you guys are looking at from a you know from a bill standpoint and funding standpoint to to help with what you are doing with geriatric home care? Well, so the difficulty in spreading geriatric home care in the two thirds of the Medicare population that is not in managed care, that's in fee-for-service Medicare, mm-hmm. is having a financing model that'll sustain practices delivering the kind of interprofessional team care that, that people need. Uh-huh. And so the Independence at Home demonstration started in 2012. It was extended by Congress in 2015. It was supposed to be renewed October of 2017 and finally got extended in February of this year, um, that's a demonstration. Uh-huh. So that's not a Medicare program. There is a bill in the Senate that's sponsored by an extremely broad spectrum of support. Uh, Senator Cornyn, Senator Portman, Senator Bennett, and Senator Markey. Uh-huh. So from Texas to Massachusetts, there's support for this. Got it. <laughs> and bipartisan support. Bi- for strong bipartisan support. Yeah. And that bill is intended to convert the independence home demonstration into a Medicare benefit. Yeah. So uh, it, this is kind of a, a, a – and probably not a novel concept, but as I'm listening to what you guys are saying, I, I keep thinking, okay, well, as you want to get you want to get people uh, cared for in the home, it's really got to be um, almost a Medicare Advantage model. Um, and. Uh, and, and so these Medicare Advantage programs are at risk in caring for these patients. And, you, and you're figuring out a way to do it, I'm not saying profitably, but so you're not losing money uh, as opposed to fee-for-service. Because fee-for-service, it's almost like a black hole. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just keep pouring money into it. and, and uh, Well, yeah. so there are practices that can deliver home-based primary care in a fee-for-service model. You, they tend to be more higher volume. Yeah, um, but, but you're not getting. It sounds like you're not getting the 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 uh, quality of care that you would normally get in a Medicare Advantage plan, mm, or no, or do no. you disagree? Okay, no, all right. But you're right. I mean, right now the incentives are in the, in the ways that Medicare Advantage plans pay for home-based primary care, which is a per person per month capitation yeah. to the pl- program, mm-hmm. is a way to pay for the cement besides all the bricks. Yep. Uh, Medicare has a primary care demo called CPC Plus that has most of those elements in it, and it, including the per- person per month payment to support the team that's delivering the care. In yeah. um, that taking the sort of elements of independence at home, which have been demonstrated to work and applying that within CPC plus is probably the cleanest mechanism to spread home based primary care. So you're on saying the for service. Okay, so okay, so you're saying that that hasn't happened yet but should. It hasn't happened yet it should. One of the goals of CPC plus is to actually spread the use of uh, house calls by hmm. the patient-centered medical homes, which are now these broader teams that include social workers yeah. and nurses. Right. And okay, Evelyn? I just wanted to add that, that one of the, the underneath all of this um, are, is the need for trained geriatrics professionals, nurse practitioners, physicians, and social workers. And the unfortunate story is that we're not training enough, and, and actually we're training fewer, there are fewer geriatricians now than there were in 1992. So I think that in addition to looking at programmatic initiatives, we also have to 
um, look in the face of who's going to be running these programs and do they have the skill. Uh, geriatricians, whether they, no matter what uh, clinical service they are, they're trained. You can't say I'm a geriatrician because I take care of older adults. It's a specific body of knowledge, and you have to be trained. And so, um, one of my one of my objectives is to try and get people to understand that we need more geriatricians, and um, this is something that we haven't been quite successful at, but we need to. Yeah. So, so why haven't you why haven't you been successful, Evelyn? Is it is it the is it the money thing? Is it the amount of um, payment yes. pay you get for being a geriatrician yes. versus anything yeah. else? Mm-hmm. Yes. Really. So yeah. the short answer is yes, yes. So if you yeah. pay you pay them more, you get more people into the program. Yes, that kind of right? stat- yeah. it's status. Uh, it's status, status within many organizations, right? Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like you guys have a pretty fun life. I mean, you, you well, get, we're thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you guys, I mean, you get you get not only to understand the patient's medical condition, but you understand their life, and I mean, that's got to ha- yes. be very enriching for you. And I'm sure that's what you get a lot of out yes. of it from from oh, a, yeah. from yes. a standpoint yes. of caring for these patients, and it makes you care for them better. Yes. Because there there are things that you know that really would affect their health that you just don't want them to, or do or don't do uh, yeah. as it relates to their health. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's really looking at a much more holistic view of the person, yeah. which un- unfortunately sometimes in medicine you, you don't get. Right. 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 Yeah. Me- medicine is has been designed to break problems down. Yeah, and no, it's really and you're and you're building them up. You're, you're building them up to to understand what's going on. With sort them. of reform, yes, you're reformulating, reassembling. Uh, yeah, at it, the end of life, it's not yeah. just geriatricians. Uh, you, you know, in the house home based primary care workforce, most of the growth in visits have been by nurse practitioners. They have right. But, the, but they're geriatric. I mean, I, I, think, yeah. I think of a nurse practitioner as a geriatrician, too. Yeah. Their specialty is nurse practitionerhood. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm okay, so, so we, have a, we have about three minutes left, and I'm, I'm going to e- ask each of you to kind of say, okay, what is the takeaway from this from your standpoint? What, 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 is, what, is, uh, what can we do moving forward from a geriatric home care standpoint to, to make it a, um, more robust in your, in your, in your view? Jean? Well, I think um, what we were just talking about in terms of educating the next generation. Uh And, you know, I'm struck by what Evelyn said. It's so true when you take a medical student out there excited about it. We tend to take out first-year medical students, and it's amazing how two or three years later when they're on service, they remember that house call. But it just doesn't translate into, I want to be a geriatrician. Okay, so education. Education. Bruce, what's what's your pearl? Uh, <laughs> convert independence at home and make it part of Medicare. Okay. Evelyn, your pearl. Uh, uh, have uh, the people who matter, i.e. the patients and or the caregivers, voice their opinions strongly to the people who make the decisions about how these programs are going to be allocated, funded, and run. Okay. So you have been listening to the Business of Healthcare in Sirius XM 111. We've been talking today about geriatric home care. I want to thank my guests uh, for a very uh, invigorating conversation about about this issue, it, uh, it is going to be a huge issue, and I think it's going to help immensely in the quality of life people have, as well as I think it's going to probably bend the cost curve in some form in, over time, because this is going to be a huge population. Bruce Kenoshin, thank you very much from Penn. Gene Newton from Penn, thank you very much. Evelyn Granary from Columbia, we really want to thank you for taking your time today. Um, this program will be replayed several times over the next week, and it will be available on demand for subscribers. The replay dates are Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm Jeff Voigt. If you have any questions or an idea, you can write or email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I want to thank our producer, Dana Cash, for the show. She does a great job. Have a great day. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 